Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 13. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, it still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who has pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what has not yet been seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of the, the, heir of the righteousness that becomes that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and sent out a place that he was going to receive as his inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in a land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she con considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from a man, in fact, one who was as good as dead, came off offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners in a temporary, in temporary residence on the earth. Hebrews 11, um, 32 to 40. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdom, kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the, raising, the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sword in two, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive 
what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that, so that they will not be made perfect without us. Hebrews chapter 12, 1-3 Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that, was, that easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lays before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. So today, uh, we're going to be looking backwards in order to look forwards. Now, last week, we finished the book of Acts, and we were thinking about how the church um, was built, how the church came about and spread throughout the early New Testament times. And so it's appropriate for us now, today, to pause for a moment and think about just where we are in the journey from the garden through to the garden city. Uh, because, in fact, there's only a few uh, letters left between where we are today and the end of the Bible. And so uh, we're kind of close to the end of our, of our story, of our biblical story. And so it's good for us to pause here and think about summing up uh, where we have been and what we've said so far. Now, the New Testament actually gives us a book to do exactly just that, and it is the book of Hebrews. And so obviously today we're going to be looking at the history of Israel through the lens of Hebrews in order that we can understand uh, and look forward to Revelation, which is the book to come. Now, the book of Hebrews allows us to see how Jesus is in fact superior to all the things uh, and, and in all the many ways that God has guided his people, sanctified his people throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, Hebrews is actually a sermon, a sermon that was preached uh, to a bunch of Israelite Jews who were, uh, who were Christians and suffering severe persecution because of, um, because of their faith. And I find it very encouraging that in the book of Hebrews, uh, as we've just read, the, uh, the author of Hebrews says, what about Barak and Jephthah and all these other people? I don't have time for that today. I'm going to move on. And so even in those days, people got a bit bored if you went on for too long. Uh, so I find that encouraging. But Hebrews is, in fact, a four-point sermon. And so uh, there's a large block of application, which is what we've just read uh, at the end. And so we're going to be looking at and following the same structure as the book of Hebrews today. We're going to be looking at Hebrews under these kind of four headings, four themes, where the author of Hebrews is trying to show people how Jesus is superior. Now, the way that uh, he has structured this sermon is that he makes a claim about Jesus is superior in this way, and then he gives a warning and application after each of these four um, uh, superior statements. And so the first claim, the first superior claim he makes about Jesus is that Jesus is the superior message and he is the superior messenger. 
Uh, so in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 1, we read, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at different times and in different ways. Uh, and in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. God appointed him uh, heir and of all the things uh, in the universe that were made through him. Uh, and so he became, uh, sorry, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of God's nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Most High, uh, 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 sorry, at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And so he became superior to angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so. Right off the bat, the author of Hebrews just assumes that the people he's speaking to are very well versed in Old Testament stuff. He doesn't, he, doesn't, um, uh, he doesn't make any sort of contextual claims. He doesn't tell them a little bit about their history. He just assumes that they will know all these things. And as you go through the book of Hebrews, it is just chock and block full of Old Testament references. Um, and so as you do your own study of the book, it's very helpful to go and look uh, at some of these things. But he makes this claim uh, that he wants his hearers to understand that Jesus brings a superior message to what had come before. Now the message that God had been speaking to Israel and to his people all throughout the history of earth was the message of himself. He was revealing himself and uh, communicating himself to the world. Now this was necessary because of sin. The knowledge of God was obscured because people were cast out of the Garden of Eden. The world was broken and corrupt. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God is revealing himself to the world. And he does so through, uh, through Israel. So he reveals, um, you know, before Jesus comes, God speaks through his special people, Israel, to the world. Israel is supposed to be God's message to the world to show them and the world, how blessed, how blessed it is to be his people. And his message to Israel came through the prophets and through angels and through the priestly system. These are the ways in which God communicated to his people so that they could communicate to the outside world. But the problem is that the message was incomplete and kind of corrupt. Because ultimately Israel wasn't the great revelation of God to the world and to the nations they were supposed to be. They ultimately end up rejecting God, rejecting his ways, and they don't, they don't end up being this blessing to all the nations around them. And so if you wanted a special place to get um, special revelation and understand who God was, you had to go to special people like the prophets or you had to wait for an angel, a messenger of God, to come to you. But that era had passed. In the former days, God spoke through angels and prophets, but now he speaks to us through his Son. Now this has application for modern Christians today. We need to think about where do we go to get revelation from God? Are we waiting for special dreams or special people to come into our lives who have the words of God? Or are we willing to take God at his word? Hebrews tells us in the former days he spoke to these special people, these miraculous signs, these angel messengers, but now he speaks to us through his son, through his living word.
And so things change when Jesus comes. If you wanted to know who God is now, look at Jesus. He is, the Hebrew author says, the exact representation of God's glory. He's the one who sustains the whole world. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the superior message. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. And when Jesus says, um, when, when just after his resurrection, uh, he, if, he says, if you want to know me, if you know me, you know my Father. And how do you know me? And he starts explaining the whole Old Testament, the scriptures to these disciples on the road to, uh, uh, road to Emmaus. Uh, and so if we want to know Jesus, we look in scripture. If we want to know God, we go to his word. When Jesus comes, he gives us a new message, a different message, a superior message. Now, the message that Christ ultimately brings, the thing that he continues to tell people again and again, is repent and believe. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. In essence, Jesus brings the message that humanity has been aching for ever since Adam and Eve were, were cast out of the garden. If you want a restored relationship with God, how do you get that? Through faith and belief. Believe with your heart, confess with your mouth. That's how you feel that longing for God in your heart. Repent and believe and accept the free gift of salvation offered through Christ. That's how your sin is dealt with. Through Jesus, this, uh, the exact representation of God who brings a true and better message from God. And so that's the first claim he makes. Jesus is, is the superior message and superior messenger. And then he gives us this warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, For this reason, since he is superior, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him. So Jesus is bringing a better message as a superior message. What do you do with that? You listen to it. Israel didn't end up listening to her messengers. They ultimately rejected God. And Jesus himself says, even if someone were to raise from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. But we live in a different era. We have this message from Christ himself as the superior messenger. Repent and believe. Trust in the great salvation that he offers. Accept this free gift and you will be saved. Because if you do not, it will not be good for you. It will not be well with your soul when the judgment day comes. The trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend and it will not be well with your soul if you reject Christ and his message. This is the first and most important thing the author of Hebrews wants his people to understand. Jesus brings the superior message. But also, not only is Jesus the superior message and messenger, he's the superior leader. And this is sort of the second half of chapter 2 through to chapter 4. 
So having established that Jesus is the greater messenger, the greater message, he now wants us to understand that Jesus is also a far superior leader uh, than Israel's ever had. And he picks on, he picks on particularly uh, Israel's two great establishing leaders, Moses and Joshua. Now, all throughout Israel's history, Moses is considered to be this leader par excellence. You know, he's the one who, who brought e- Israel out of Egypt. He's the one who gave them the laws that govern Israel. He's the one who led Israel through the desert and established them as a nation, as God's representative. And then Joshua was this great leader who led the people ultimately into Canaan, into the land of, uh, of rest, into the promised land, so they could finally uh, be free of, of Egypt, but also uh, free to rest in this promised land flowing with milk and honey. But in these chapters, the author of Hebrews makes the point that, yes, you know, Moses and Joshua, they led the people to the promised land, and they ultimately entered the promised land, but the rest they received there was temporary. It wasn't a real and lasting peace. They lost that because of their disobedience. Because Israel ultimately rejected God, the promises, um, uh, God himself curses them and says, they will never enter into my rest. And so the promised land was really just a foreshadowing of an eternal rest that was to come. The eternal kind of peaceful shalom that we have with Christ in all eternity if we are to repent and believe. So how do we get this rest? Well, we listen to the message. Repent and believe and you will be saved. Don't reject the offer of salvation uh, that Jesus gives. But having established that Jesus is the superior leader, offering this superior rest. The author of Hebrews then goes on to give his second warning. He says, In the past, Israel had this land of promise, this land of rest, and they lost it because of their disobedience. So then, don't get locked out of this promised rest because of your hardened heart. Don't reject the gift that is being offered. Why? Because we have a better leader than Moses. We have a better leader than Joshua, who just took the people of Israel into this uh, temporary land of rest. We have a greater leader who takes us to eternal rest. So hold on to his word through obedience in faith. Ultimately, he ends up saying, how do you do that? How do you stay uh, obedient to Christ? Well, You listen and obey to his word. In Hebrews 4, he says, Let us then make every effort to enter into that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience as with Israel. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you want to stay true to God's word, uh, in obedience to him, then listen to his word. Follow what is written. Don't give up on scripture. That is ultimately how you, uh, you enter into this rest. There is something about living under God's laws that makes life more peaceful. 
both in this world and in the next. So that's the second thing. Jesus is the superior message, so listen to him. Jesus is the superior leader, so follow him, obey him, and live according to his word, his law. But then the third thing is that Jesus is the superior mediator. And this is sort of chapters 5 through to 8-ish. It sort of cuts halfway through the middle. And here the author of Hebrews wants the readers now to compare Jesus not to Moses and Joshua, but to Aaron, the high priest. And he makes the point, yes, that Aaron was this high priest, but Aaron had a problem. And the problem was that he was sinful, as were all the high priests who came after him. And this is a problem. Because the high priest therefore cannot be a perfect mediator between God's people and God. Because they're sinful. And so whenever the high priest wants to make an atonement for the sins of the people, he first has to sacrifice something for his own sin. He has to be cleaned himself. And so there's this whole system where he would offer a sacrifice for himself uh, before he can atone for the, for the people. But by definition then, the atonement of the people is limited. Their sins have to be washed away year and year again and again. Because the high priest was flawed and his work was essentially incomplete. But Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is not like that kind of high priest. He's a wholly different kind of beast, if you like. Listen to what he says about Jesus in chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was the Son, this is of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a wholly different kind of high priest. He was a high priest like Melchizedek, not like Aaron. Now, I know you know your Bible so well that you all understand immediately who Melchizedek was and the implications that has for your life. So I'm just going to skip over that. No, no. Uh, way back in Genesis 14, so just hands up, who knows who Melchizedek was? Okay, good. So I, I've, I've done my job over the years. That's good. For those of us who are playing along at home who don't know, uh, way back in Genesis 14, there is this strange situation where Lot, Abram's nephew, uh, gets captured. And uh, what happens is that, is that Abram goes and he saves him. He, he saves him from the people who had captured him. And as he takes the plunder from this mini-war home, Abram comes across this strange ki- uh, figure. He is the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14... Uh, it says there that he was a, a priest of God Most High. So then Abram does something extremely odd for the time of the day. He gives a tenth of all of his plunder to Melchizedek as a way of showing him honor and reverence. Now, like Hebrews says, I don't have time to go into this today, but I, I wish we did because there are a few things we need to understand. The name Melchizedek means a king of righteousness. Okay, that's what his, the, the words themselves mean. And this king of righteousness is the king of Salem, and Salem uh, means peace. So you've got this priest king who's a king of righteousness, the king of, peace, uh, king of peace. And he's this kind of prefigurement of Christ Jesus himself, and he rules his people 
just like Jesus rules his people, as this priest king of peace. Now what's critical is that he is outside of the family line of Abraham. Melchizedek is not a Levite. The high priests were all Levites. They came from the Levitical tribe down from Aaron's side. But Jesus can't be just that kind of high priest. He needs to be a better high priest than that if he is going to mediate for us outside of Israel. And so God declares that Jesus is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek, this this king priest who comes to bring peace to the whole world. And so Jesus is a superior high priest. And this then is what the author says in in chapter 7. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice every day as the high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints high priests who are men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which is that God declares him to be a high priest of Melchizedek, the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Jesus is superior to the high priestly line. Now what does this mean for us? Hebrews makes the point that because Jesus is a high priest outside of the line of Aaron, because he is this high priest of the order of Melchizedek, we can have full assurance that our sins are forgiven that his sacrifices actually do what they're supposed to do. And so the argument of, of the Sermon of Hebrews is that Jesus brings a better message, repent and believe and you'll be saved. He can do this because he's a superior leader to Moses and Joshua and all who repent and believe uh, will enter his heavenly uh, rest. And we can be assured of this because his high priestly work is of a much better nature than the weak, earthly kind of work that Aaron's line did. His work is Melchizedekian, not Aaronic. And so we can fully trust that when we believe, we don't have to take the weight of our sins back on us. Once we've laid our sins in front of the cross, uh, trusting in Jesus, we don't take that burden back. We have full assurance that our sins are eternally forgiven when we repent and believe. And for the author of Hebrews, this is what it means to be mature in your faith, is to have this assurance. He goes on to this whole spiel about how being mature in Christ is, is the consequence of having this assurance not wanting to have this spiritual milk anymore, but now needing to move on to spiritual meat. That's what all of that's about, I think, is is to have full assurance that we are truly forgiven. That's what it means to be spiritually mature. And then he says, if we doubt that, if we doubt that we are truly saved, we are holding Jesus' sacrifice in contempt. And so he says to the Hebrews, Grow up. 
Don't constantly go back to needing the foundations of your salvation laid again and again and again. Grow up. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you, then you are saved. So stop worrying about it. Move on so you can live in obedience to him. And how can you do that? By recognizing that Jesus was far better than the high priest of Aaron's life. So that's point three. How are we doing? Are we with me? Are we with me? All right. So Jesus is the superior messenger with a superior message, so listen to him. He's the superior leader with the superior rest, uh, eternal life in him, if you trust in him. And so because he's the superior mediator, you can trust in that. You don't have to offer sacrifices over and over and over again. And then he makes the fourth point. Jesus is also the superior sacrifice. So not only is he the superior high priest, he is himself the superior sacrifice. And this is chapters 9 and 10. So from verse 11 in chapter 9, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Uh, In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, he entered uh, he entered the most ho- uh, holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more so will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from, the, from dead works so that we can serve the living God. So not only is Jesus this high priest who offers better sacrifices, he is himself the sacrifice totally unblemished. He could enter the most holy place, stand before God sinless and offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for his people. And when he does so, he sprinkles us clean with his blood. His sacrifice is superior to all the sacrifices that came before. In the past, all you had was the blood of goats and the bloods of bulls and young cows and so on. Uh, But these things are temporary. They only pointed to the real sacrifice, which was Christ himself. And so through Jesus' blood, we are now clean eternally, once for all. You don't need to offer him again and again and again. His sacrifice is superior because the one who offered it was better. His sacrifice is superior because his blood was better than that of animals. His sacrifice is superior because it lasts forever for those who repent and believe. His sacrifice is superior because he offers it willingly, and it was superior because it was effective for cleaning people. His sacrifice is superior because it actually does the job of bridging the gap between us and God. And so in every way, Jesus' sacrifice is superior. That's how clean we are. We are eternally clean. So as the Wren Collective song says, we boldly we approach the throne. Blameless now we're coming home. By his blood we've come, welcomed as his own, into the arms of majesty. Do you Do you get how scandalous this would have been to a Jew who forever, throughout all of the history of Israel, 
the Holy of Holies was a, was, a, was a place only the high priest could go. It was a place of fear and judgment. But now through Jesus, you can just waltz in there and declare, here I am, God, because of Christ's blood. That's scandalously amazing. But having established that that's who we now are, the author of Hebrews does something shocking and totally unexpected. You see, in each of the warning sections of the previous four points, uh, the application is directly linked to Jesus' superiority. He's the superior message, listen to him. He's the superior leader, obey him. He's the superior mediator, therefore you can trust in his work. He's the superior sacrifice, the application is therefore meet together as a church. It says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, um, he says, let us, ho so skipping a few verses, because we have this, free this freedom, let us consider how we might provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. That's mind-blowing. Do you see how important the church is to your faith and trusting in this greatest sacrifice that Christ offered? So much so that the author of Hebrews directly links gathering together with other Christians to the very sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Superior message, repent and believe. Superior leader, follow him. Superior mediator, trust in his work. Superior sacrifice, gather together with other believers to spur one another on. It's startling. But here's the truth. I need you to spur me on. You need me to spur you on and we need one another to spur each other on. Because no matter how good the sacrifice is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We need one another. You cannot, according to the author of Hebrews, actually be a Christian on your own. We need each other. Excluding ourselves from the community of the church is spiritually disastrous because you, it tempts you to let go of the confession of your hope. It tempts you to waver in your conviction. Therefore, given the superior sacrifice, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's the argument of the book. And then the author of Hebrews gets on to the, to the very big so what. And I'll just quickly talk about this. So what? So they're superior in every way. So what? So then you can live in a world of persecution. That's his big so what. In, verse, uh, in chapter 11 he says, All of these people before died in faith, although they did not receive the things that were promised. They saw them from a distance. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents 
uh, on this earth. And then further on he says, others experienced, um, sorry, other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. They experienced mocking, scourgings, the bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, died by the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. But all of these people were approved through their faith, yet they did not receive what they were promised, since God had something better for them. What the author of Hebrews does here is he says, look at the past. Look at all the, all the people of faith in Israel who trusted God. Look at Adam and Abram and Sarah, the patriarchs. They trusted God. They had faith. Now looking at their faith, notice that they did not receive what they were promised. Abram, you're going to have children as vast as the, as the sand on the sea. You had one child. You're going to enter the promised land. doesn't happen for 400 years. They were heirs of the promise, but they saw it through faith from a distance. They were going to be this blessing to the nations. doesn't happen until Israel goes through the desert and becomes slaves in Egypt. They did not get the promises themselves, what God had promised them. And this is a truth you and I, or the Jewish Christians at least, needed to hear. In the midst of persecution so severe that some fell from the faith, in this life, you may not get what you think God has promised you. Your life may just be a quiet life of faith, not seeing the amazing deliverance and healing and whatever else you think God has promised you. Living with faith looks like that. But don't just look at the history of Israel. Look at those other martyrs who came before you, Jewish Christians I'm writing to today. Look at those who, who suffered. What happened to them? They were mocked. They were sawn in half, pierced by the sword, killed. They did not receive what they were promised since God had provided something better for them, something better than a safe and a secure life, something better than a good job with our kids in a good school. Something better than wealth and health and the ability to prosper. God gave them something better. He gave them Christ, superior in every way to everything. Someone so good that these Christians were willing to be sawn in half, cut by the stone, a sword, stoned, destitute, afflicted. These things were nothing compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord. Friends, you and I live in a time where it is increasingly costly to love Christ. Where it costs us to follow Jesus. Where it will cost you to listen to the superior message and live lives of repentance and faith. We live in a time where following the superior leader and sticking to his word and what it actually says is going to cost us more and more. It's going to cost us jobs and friendships and even family relationships. We live in a time where 
following our superior mediator, our better high priest, is going to cost us more and more in a world that tells us all religions are the same, all roads lead to God, Jesus is just one option among many, for us to insist that he is the way, the truth and the life is going to cost us. We live in a time where trusting Jesus as the superior sacrifice on the cross is all the more costly precisely because it is so offensive to this world. It implies that you are broken. And for you to trust in Jesus means that someone has to offend you to tell you that you are broken. And that's going to cost you. It is costly to be a believer. And the scary truth that Hebrews teaches us is that in the midst of being ever more costly to be Christian, some will fall away. Because it is costly to be a Christian, some will fall away. You might fall away unless, unless you value Christ as superior to everything the world offers. Unless you love him more than what it's going to cost you to follow him. So, how superior is Jesus in your life? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that once again you come and confront us with uh, all we need to hear. We pray that as we reflect on all the things in this life, all the good things that are offered to us in this life, against the cost of following you, Lord, help us to see the scales properly. Be the superior one in our lives, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.